Almost ready. Thank you guys for bearing with me. My wife will be very happy to watch the video when I get home because she misses me when I'm gone. And it makes her happy to be able to see my face and to see me, where am I? I'm right here. And to see me smiling and uh, preaching about Jesus. I don't know that she could be happy with me being gone if I wasn't doing this. If I was just gone, um, gallivanting around, and it didn't have anything to do with preaching the gospel, she might not be able to smile about that, if you can imagine um, what I'm saying. Um, for those of you that don't know, I was here three, three years ago, um, a little over three years ago. It was right before COVID broke out, in fact, and I barely got out of here because they were starting to shut down the airports. And I remember I, we ministered here, and then I was in Derry ministering there, and I had been gone for six weeks from my wife and my, my home. And we were doing praise and worship at Phelim Doherty's church, and um, I nearly broke down in tears because I thought, Lord, I was happy to come, but I need to get home to my wife, man. You understand what I'm saying? Because they were starting to talk about, we're shutting everything down. And I was like, I love Ireland. I love the Irish people. There's a, a, a joy in the Irish people. I know there's the spirit of the world that tries to say differently. Because I hear people tell me that there's a sadness sometimes. I feel a joy in the Irish people that I haven't experienced anywhere that I've gone. It, there's an exuberance for God. Like, there's a pure desire in the, the Irish people's hearts to know God. And I just want to say what a blessing that is for me. But it's been three years ago since I was here. If you weren't here three years ago, um, my name's Greg. Um, my wife and I live in a little town called Slidell, Louisiana. It's named after a pirate named John Slidell because we're about 20 miles from New Orleans, which was a big port for pirates. And so um, I flew all the way in from New Orleans. We uh, pastor a little church called Gospel Revolution Church um, right outside New Orleans. And um, we have a YouTube channel. If you ever want to go watch me on YouTube from time to time, you could do it there. Um, and most of the people that consider themselves part of our, are connected with our ministry, they connect through YouTube. The internet's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Isn't it, man? I mean, you're, you're on Facebook right now all over the world. And it's powerful how we're not just connected in the spirit, but we've, we've connected all over the world. And we're meeting people from all over the world through the gospel. And it's like a beautiful image of God bringing the body of Christ into the unity of the faith, right? Where he's restoring Christ as the head of the church. Because for so long, the church has tried to, like, like Brother Billy here is saying, the church has tried to be the head itself instead of being the body. Well, the body's supposed to receive nutrients from the head, not from itself. And what I see God doing is restoring the knowledge of the Son of God, restoring Jesus as the head, so we as the body can receive nutrients from the head, right? Each joint being supplied from Christ and then us supplying to one another, right? With the gifts and callings that are in each of us. And I see God connecting the body of Christ throughout the earth and bringing us into the unity of the faith. And it's a powerful, beautiful thing. Um, before we get started, during praise and worship,
um, I just was hearing the Our Father in, in my heart. You know, when, when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. Because they noticed he was disappearing all the time and getting caught up in prayer. What are you doing, man, when you're over there? How are you praying? Now, we know Jesus wasn't giving us a formula to just recite, that there was a, a deep spiritual meaning, a heart meaning behind what Jesus was saying. But we'll just quote the first couple of verses. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. What Jesus was saying is that God is set apart to bringing forth the life that's in heaven here in earth. Amen. That God has always intended from the beginning for there not to be a sky or a sea in the air separating heaven and earth, but he always intended for heaven and earth to collide and become one. And that heaven would dwell here on earth. Like Billy said, we're going to inherit the earth. For so long, Christians are trying to get out of the earth. We're trying to get away from the earth. But Jesus said in Matthew 5 that the earth is our inheritance. The earth is our inheritance. Jesus even prayed in John 17, Father, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the world. And so on earth as it is in heaven. You know, the earthly tabernacle that God had Moses make, there was the outer court, and there was the inner court, and there was the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is the place where man, who was earthy and came from the outer court, would come into the Holy of Holies, and that's where God, who was heavenly, would meet with man. That which was heavenly, God. And that which was earthy, man, would meet in the Holy of Holies. And the point was for heaven and earth to collide and become one through them coming together as one. And in fact, the ancient Hebrews, Israelites, do you know they call the temple heaven on earth? Heaven and earth? Because that's how they saw it. They saw it prophesying of a collision between man and God, heaven and earth. So on earth as it is in heaven. Listen, guys, it's not yet seen heaven and this physical earth having collided, but I'll tell you that this, we have the first fruits of that coming to pass because heaven and earth has collided inside of you. That which is heavenly and that which is earthy has come together as one because God and you have been joined together through His Holy Spirit. It's in you as it is in heaven right now. You're walking around as heaven on earth. The kingdom of God has come inside of you. What does John say? Beloved, we don't yet now see our bodies glorified as they will be, but we know that as Jesus is now, so are we in this world. Well, how is Jesus now? I mean, have we thought about these things? We say all the right words. But have we thought about what it means that as Jesus is now, so are we in this world? What is, how is Jesus now? I'll tell you how Jesus is now. 
He's in a glorified human body that sin and death has been completely removed from, that sin and death can never come upon him again. He has a life that has no sin or death in it. He has an incorruptible life. He has a life that can't be overcome by the world. He has a life that can't be touched by weakness. He has a life that isn't at the mercy of what goes on in this world. He has a life that can't be harmed or taken or stolen from by sin and death. He has a life that always stands up. He has a life that can never be taken down. The sin and death in this earth cannot climb up into the heaven and take Jesus down. So, beloved, as he is now. See, none of us are busy thinking that COVID or anything else could climb up into heaven and steal from Jesus. But we walk around in this world and we see the darkness in this world and we can see the death and the calamity in the world. And sometimes we get tricked into thinking that what we see in the world can take from us, that it can steal from us, that our lives can be added to and then they can be subtracted to. But you can't add to the life of Jesus. Neither can you subtract from it. It is so much that it consumes all things. It is all things. It holds all things together. And that Jesus is in you. On earth, as it is in heaven. You, I'm just going to say it. You have a sinless life. Do you know what it means that you have a sinless life? It's without spots or blemishes. I said you have a sinless life. That will mess up your head. Do you know what we want more than anything? A sinless life. A life without spots and blemishes. A life that can't be corrupted. A life that isn't at the mercy of the corruption and the decay we see. That's why we feel tormented when we see things going wrong. That's why we feel tormented when something that's unjust happens. Because we're yearning for a sinless life. Well, brothers and sisters, the x-ray of our life is not this world. The x-ray of our life is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when the world gives you an x-ray of your life, it tries to show you spots and blemishes, doesn't it? It tries to show you all the areas that are being corrupted or that are breaking down because it wants to torment you. It wants to get you to live as if your life is held in this world instead of God. It wants you to think that your life is hid in this world and the corruptible things of this world instead of being hid with God and Christ. The testimony of your life is not found in what you see here. The testimony of your life is found in what you see in the Lord Jesus. That's the testimony we're living by. Right? There's juice in that. That will juice you up. It said that Abraham and the Old Testament prophets, they knew they were strangers in a strange land, pilgrims, right? And that they looked for a heavenly country because they knew heaven and earth would collide. Brothers and sisters, we will inherit the earth, but our inheritance is not the corrupt systems of this world. Our inheritance is not the governments of this world. That's not our inheritance. Our, her our inheritance is the government that's built upon the shoulders of Jesus' indestructible life. Yeah, right. And his kingdom reigns now. Right. 
and we reign with him because our life is seated above all the principalities and powers in this world. Our life is seated above the prince of the power of this air. Our lives are seated above the prince of this world because the life we have in us from God has already overcome the perishable, death-filled life that Satan tried to plant in this earth. And when Jesus came, anointed by God as God himself, he came with an axe and he took an axe to the root of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that brought forth death in this earth. And when he died on that cross, he was the seed of God's life. And when he died on that cross, the outer shell, the body that died, moved away from him. And the incorruptible seed, which was the incorruptible life of God that dwelled in him, dropped into this ground. And the tree of life has sprung forth. And there's no more cherubims covering the tree of life. And now we're standing in the grace of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has divorced us from death, who has divorced this earth from death, and has removed the cherubims that were blocking the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And it's by the power of what he's done in his work that we now come and eat freely from the tree of life. Yeah. Glory to God. It's not just words. You have an incorruptible life. God's, the gospel is God trying to teach you about his life and the life that's in his house. And he's trying to teach you about the life that comes from above that isn't of an earthy substance, it's of a heavenly substance. And because it's a, of a heavenly substance, it doesn't bow down. It doesn't bow down or break in the presence of sin and death. But the life that is in his house that's of a heavenly substance, it consumes sin and death. It's a consuming fire that consumes sin and death. John the Baptist come and said, I baptize you in water, but there's one coming after me that will baptize you in fire. And on the day of Pentecost, when they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, a flame of fire appeared over their head. And that flame of fire was representing the presence of God, the very life of God itself. And that fire baptized them to consume every remnant of sin and death that could ever come against their life. I don't know if you guys see it, but I see a tongue of fire. Over all of your heads, there's a flame of fire that is the incorruptible life of God that you've been pitched within and without by. And just like Noah pitched the ark within and without, and the flood of water, the corruption, and it couldn't swallow him. You've been pitched within and without by the fire of God's life. And what that means is there's nothing in this world that can take you out. There's a consuming fire in you. And that fire will consume anything that comes against your life. You know, we, I grew up in the house of my parents. I was born of my mother, conceived through my father. And they had a certain life in their house. Right? There were certain characteristics and certain attributes to their life. And as I was born in their house and they brought me home and I began to grow up in the house, they taught me about the life that's in that house. 
they taught me how to navigate the, the life that's in the world, right? Whose yard? Where's your yard? When do you eat? What does this life look like? Well, brothers and sisters, our life is from the house of God. And what God wants to do is teach us about that life. Because I promise you, we're experts in the life that's in this world. We know it inside and out. This world has taught us real good about a fragile life. This world has taught us real good about a life that can be harmed, a life that can be taken from, a life that can be stolen from. This world has really come against our hearts to try to sting our hearts with death. This world has really tried to convince us that it is our Father. And the gospel comes to teach us about the life that's in heaven. Because we've been born from above. We've come out of the very loins of God himself. Our life hasn't come forth from this world or this earth. It's come forth from God himself. And so what kind of a life is that? Incorruptible. Why weren't the apostles afraid of death? You notice how the apostles were real scared before the Holy Spirit was poured out? Like Peter wouldn't even admit he knew Jesus. And I don't know that dude. And then Jesus tells them, wait in the upper room and you shall receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit has come. Dunamis. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of life. It's the spirit of God's life, an incorruptible life. You notice what you see about the apostles after that flame of fire baptized them? Nothing could stop them. They were threatened with death every day. Do you see them hiding anymore? Do you know why? Because they realize there's a life in me that even swallows death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? And they became dangerous to the prince of this world. They became dangerous to the systems of this world because they were no longer in fear of the prince of this world. They were no longer in bondage to his perishable life, to the death that he fathered in this earth because they had a life that isn't at the mercy of his death. And they began to be witnesses of the resurrection. What does it mean to be witnesses of the resurrection? That there's a life that even overcomes death, guys. We've lived all our days in fear of this big giant, this big giant of death, this big Goliath that towered over us, that no man had ever beat, that no woman had ever conquered, that made us feel fear and shame, that was always uncovering our nakedness, pointing at our weakness, pointing at our death, filling us with fear and shame. None of us could beat it. But guys, I have good news for you. A life has entered the earth that overcomes the giant. It has decapitated the giant. It has slayed the giant. The giant is death. That's our giant. These individual circumstances ain't no giant. Death was the giant, and one greater than David came and decapitated and crushed the head of the serpent at the cross. When David slew the giant, he cut off Goliath's head, and he took it and buried it. You know where he buried it? In a place called Golgotha. The place of the skull. Calvary. Do you know where the Lord Jesus was crucified? 
Right there. Do you know how God prophesied in Genesis 3 that the seed of woman would come and the seed of woman would crush the head of the serpent? Jesus is the seed that was prophesied through the house of David. David slain. Goliath was prophesying of one who would come after him, who would slay the real giant, which was death. And notice the Lord Jesus did not have any human armor. He did not have a physical sword to slay the giant. But what he did was he knew he had a life in himself that overcomes death. He allowed the death to come into his own body, and then he swallowed it from the inside out. And in doing that, he crushed the head of the serpent, and he decapitated the giant. We don't have giants in the earth. We have giants on the ground having been decapitated. We can say a lot of things that are beautiful. You know, every breath we breathe, we're actually saying the name of God. Every breath we breathe, we're actually declaring His name. We know we're breathing in the spirit of His lungs every time we take a breath. These are all beautiful things. But what I find in the body of Christ is that we haven't really learned about the life we have from heaven and what it means for us here. We haven't really seen that the resurrection is enough. It's not that we can't have signs and wonders, but it's like we've lost sight of the only sign we should be living by which was that Jesus was spit out of the belly of the whale. Jesus conquered the grave. That's supposed to be the sign we live by. Do you know what it's a sign of? Listen, you guys, I can see, y'all are all old enough to have encountered hard times. Every single one of you have had something try to come against your life. Every single one of you have had something tried to fill you with fear and convince you that your life is being overcome, that your life is being stolen from, that your life is being taken from. The resurrection is supposed to be a sign to you of what kind of life you have. It's supposed to give you a testimony that rebukes the devourer, that rebukes the testimony the world is trying to give you about your life when something goes wrong. It's supposed to declare to you that you have a life that can't be stolen from. You have a life that can't be conquered. You have a life that is so much. You know, guys, the life that you have in yourself, do you know it's the very life that was released into the darkness and chaos in Genesis that brought forth light and brought forth everything that was created? That's inside of you. We're supposed to hear the voice of that life when we encounter the corruption in this world. And do you know what it does inside of us? It causes us to stand up straight. It fills us with boldness in the face of tribulation. It fills us with good cheer. Do you know the early church fathers, they wrote about the apostles, and you know that they wrote that they sneered at death? They laughed at it. How many of the apostles do you see trying to hide from it? How many of the apostles do you see living scared of what could happen? How many of the apostles do you see living as if something could be stolen from them? Zero. They're not better than us, guys. They're not some super spiritual people that are just greater than us, and we can't hope to be one of them. We just haven't thought about the resurrection of the dead like they have. And that's what I see God restoring in the body of Christ. 
right? An incorruptible life that we have that's in us. Does that make any sense? That was a long intro. Because that doesn't have anything to do with what I wanted to say today. <laughs> oh. I want to thank Billy and, and Jenny for having me here. Man, it's, it's a great joy to be with you guys. And I, 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 my eyes were closed and I was worshiping the Lord, could I, so I couldn't see who it was that gave a word. But there is a joy in this place. Right? There's a joy in, in you, Billy and Jenny, and it's a, it's a great blessing. I'm thinking of Isaiah and all the people here. I'm th- it's, it's a joy to be here with you all. Being with you all and seeing you all pulled that out of me just now. Right? Because I see something in you that says to me, yeah, these people are ready. These people, no. Right? But I'm thinking of Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of them who preach the gospel that brings peace. And it's a great joy for me to come around the world and find that you guys are preaching about the goodness of God. It's easy to see God in you all. It's easy to see an exuberance for God. Man, it's a great blessing um, to be here. So thank you so much for letting me come and talk to, to the people, to talk to you. It's no small thing that you would have me here. I'm, I'm thinking of a song in the United States and maybe, I don't even know, maybe it isn't uh, from America. Maybe it's from somewhere else. I think it is from the States. It goes something like, do you guys mind if I sing a little song? I won't sing long. I don't sing very good. And as you can tell, my voice is hoarse from last night. I get excitable and I get to shouting. Um, you are so beautiful to me. You are so beautiful to me. I pray you know that that's the song God sings over all of your lives. I pray you know that you're beautiful to God, that your mind can't even begin to fathom the beauty that he beholds in you. Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would know that the Father loves us with the exact same measure and amount of love that he loves Jesus with. And you see, that's what sustained Jesus' life when he walked this earth. If you want to know the one good thing that manifested in Jesus, if you boiled it down to the root of what manifested in Jesus, he was really persuaded that the Father loved him. He was really persuaded that the Father did not possess the ability to do him harm. He was really persuaded that the Father would never let him be overcome. He was really persuaded the Father would be an advocate for his life, that the Father would defend his name, that the Father would defend his life. And so he never lived in the world trying to justify himself. He was put to rest by the Father's love. And that's what the Father wants to come and bring forth in us. And the way he tries to convince us of this love You see, we look all over for love. We're people that live by signs. I don't know if you guys realize that. There's signs everywhere. There's signs on the street. There's speed limit signs. There's signs about stores, cities, how many miles. We're always living by signs. So we're all, I don't know if you guys realize this, we're always looking for evidence that God loves us. We are. 
The thing is, we're looking in this world to try to find signs that God loves us. Now, we will inherit this earth, but I promise you, the perishable life we see in this world has not been fathered by God. The United States government hasn't been fathered by God. The governments and systems of this world haven't been fathered by God. It's not the life of God we see in those systems. I just did a funeral for my dear brother. God is not the father of the death. And see, what happens is, is we're looking in this world for signs and evidence that we're loved by God. But then we're looking to things that God didn't provide or that He didn't father. This earth is not the, this world is not the table God prepared for us. This world is not the bread that He comes to feed us. And so, imagine if I'm trying to find evidence of my father's love for me, and I go and look at the life that my friend's dad provides to him. So I don't look in my house to what God provides. I don't look to the bread my father provides. I don't look to what he gives me, but I go down the street to my friend's house, and I start looking around to what his dad gives him. And I'm looking there for evidence that my father loves me. That's the wrong way around it. That's never going to work. You guys understand Satan's called the prince of this world. You understand that Satan built a government in this world that's upon the shoulders of his perishable life. That's on the shoulders of his corruption and his iniquity and the death that he has in himself. So he got Adam to plant the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in this world. And that tree's been producing death. And the devil's got us looking to the fruit of death in the earth to try to find evidence that we're loved by God. But God's not the one that fathered those things. So how are we ever going to find the evidence that we're loved by looking to that? I love my wife. I'm not looking to my wife and how she behaves or how she treats me to find the evidence that I'm loved by God. There's only one place I'm looking. It's to the life that God provided for me. It's to the table that God prepared it's to the bread that God fed me with. Paul, the Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what Paul's saying there? He's saying a lot. But one of the main things Paul's saying is, the life you see in the resurrected Jesus, the glorified man Jesus, that's the life the Father has provided for you. That's the bread the Father has fed you with. That's the table the Father has prepared. We're not preparing a table for God. God's preparing a table for us. And do you know what's on the table that God prepared for us? His lamb. His own body. He offered himself as the lamb. He put his own body onto the table so we can feed of him and his incorruptible life. And so if you want to look for evidence or a sign that you're loved by God, you don't look to the world around you. You look to the life that manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ because that's the table that God has prepared for you. That's the bread that he has provided for you. I find people struggle to experience the love of God. And I find the reason why they struggle it's because of the bad that's happened to them here. And they're thinking it's a sign that God isn't here. He doesn't love me. How could it be this way if He loved me? 
Listen, I'll tell you this, even should God had made everything perfect in the temporal, corruptible things of this world, none of those things could have ever given you a life that overcomes death. And so God saw what we needed was a life that overcomes death. And he saw I'm the only one that has it. So he poured out of himself his life and to be given to us so that we could have a life that can't be corrupted. And that's the sign that we look for to see whether he loves me. That's the sign that we look for to see whether or not he was with us when this world came to destroy our lives. Every single one of us in here has had the world try to destroy our life in one way or another. The resurrection is the sign that God does care. The resurrection is the sign that God is not indifferent. The resurrection is the sign that he's not far from us. The resurrection is the sign that he has kept you from the calamity because the resurrection is the only thing that can actually preserve your life from the bad that happens in this world. I know for me, it took me so long to understand that. And I lived all the time, why, Lord? Why? And it got to the point, sometimes you can be so brokenhearted that you don't even know you're living with a broken heart no more. And you're just kind of hunched over. But in your, you know you love God. You know God's good, but you feel, where was God? Well, I'll tell you where God was. In the midst of the death that was trying to destroy you, entering into the midst of the pain and the suffering and the heartbreak and the destruction so that he could blow it up from the inside out. And he could now tell you that he's given you a life that swallows all that. He's given you a life that all those bad things can't steal from. That's why we feel so hurt when something bad happens. We think it can steal from us. We think we've missed out on something. We think that we could have had some good thing if only these things would have gone right. And now all of a sudden, because they didn't go right, we don't have something we need for peace and love and joy. We don't have something we need to experience fullness or abundance. We don't have something we need to be at rest. But God come and said that he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. Does that make any sense? Glory to God. How far am I? Can I, can I go into the message, Billy? Because none of that has anything to do with the message. They make fun of me back home because I'm not like a modern day preacher because I preach for so long. They, they tease me and, and, and point to Paul and Acts where he's preaching for hours and hours and hours and the young guy falls out of the windowsill because he went to sleep. <laughs> Listen. If you fall asleep and fall out of the chair and suffer some injury, we will raise you up. <laughs> and if you fall asleep, I won't be upset about it because I don't think you have to be awake for the Spirit of God to minister to you. And sometimes it might be better for you to fall asleep so your head ain't in the way of what I'm trying to say. Because I don't know if you realize that sometimes we try to listen with our head. We, try and, we have an intellect. And sometimes we're trying to hear the gospel with our intellect instead of our heart. The gospel don't come to teach our intellect. It comes to persuade our heart. And after our heart's persuaded, our intellect can begin to think like God. Glory to God. Right? Thank you, Father. 
Thank you, Father, that we could have this time together with each other and with you. We come together in the spirit of your love for us. We, we come together to, to know you and to be known by you. Lord, let that which is perfect, let your love, the only thing that never fails, let that love be born and let that love have its perfect work in everyone here, myself included, and everyone that could ever hear this message. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I've been thinking about the, the love of God quite a bit. You guys, let me take a sip of water real quick. The love of God is the most powerful healing. It's the most powerful force for healing known to mankind. It really is. It's the most powerful force for healing that, that has ever been known. And the, the reason it is, and when we talk about powerful, what we're, what we're thinking of is that it heals our, our sicknesses and diseases. It purifies our hearts from fear. Right? It satisfies our flesh with long life. Isn't that what the psalm says? Do you know what our flesh wants? Immortality. It wants a glorified body that can't get old, that can't feel weakness. That's what it wants. If you look around in the world, you know what we're all trying to do? Slow down the aging process. Right? I mean, we do all kinds of things to try to stay young. We compare ourselves. We do all these things. Where does that stuff come from? It comes from a desire for immortality, for life. And so the love of God, it heals our sicknesses. It liberates our lives from being held by this world. It hides our lives with God and Christ. And it satisfies our flesh with immortality. And it puts our flesh to rest in this earth. It maketh us to lay down in the tender green grass. Right? That's what it does. And so the reason why, I, I, I think with God. God and I, man, I ask him all kinds of stuff. Him and I, I realize God's my friend. So I talk to him like my friend. And he talks back to me that way. And he will. You don't have to be afraid to be, just be blunt with God. But I ask God, why is your love? I know it is, but I want to know why. Why is your love the most powerful healing agent known to mankind? And what I, what I felt I heard him say to me, what he said to me was, is because I know, I really know what hurts you. I'm intimately acquainted with what hurts you and why it hurts you. So I'm uniquely gifted and qualified to comfort you from what hurts you, right? Now, that's a powerful thing because in, in light of him knowing that, his life, the love that pours out of him is a love that has the ability to make us whole. And then strengthen us to live with wholeness in this whole world. In this world while we walk in this world. And we will inherit the earth. And should we go to be with the Lord before Jesus comes back and stands foot on this earth? We know we're going to come with him and heaven and earth are going to collide. And earth is going to be glorified with an incorruptible life. And we'll put on incorruptible bodies and we'll dwell with God all our days in this earth. The way we were intended to to begin with. Hallelujah. Have any of you guys ever heard of Brennan Manning? The ragamuffin gospel, I think. Yeah, I, I thought I'd start by sharing a little story that he told, and so some of you might hear it, and I might not tell it as good as him. But just have mercy on my soul. 
But there's a famous preacher named Brennan Manning, for those of you that don't know. And he's since gone on to be with uh, the Lord. But Brennan Manning told a story about a Hasidic rabbi from Ukraine. And the Hasidic rabbi from Ukraine said he learned the meaning of love from two drunkards. I remember the first time I heard him say that, I thought, doesn't that sound bizarre? Well, when one morning the rabbi was out in the Polish countryside to visit a friend of his who owned a tavern, the rabbi walked in and saw two men seated at a table that were very, very drunk. Drunk as skunks, the rabbi says. That they were stoned out of their minds, arms wrapped around each other, and as they were wrapped around each other, drunk in their cups, they're both professing to one another with great boldness, I love you. No, I love you. No, I love you. And the rabbi walks in and is watching these two guys doing that. Well, the one guy, his name's Ivan. He looks at the guy, Peter, and he says to him, if you love me, Tell me what hurts me. And Peter, how do I know what hurts you? What are you talking about? How can you say you love me if you don't know what hurts me? Peter says. Brennan Manning had a, a close preacher friend. He was an Episcopal priest in a city in the United States named Columbus. It was in Ohio. Back in 1981, this Episcopal priest got very disenchanted with his faith and his relationship with God and thought that it was bankrupt and it was empty and it was vain and he became full of doubt. And he wrote a letter of resignation to the vestry, to the body that he was a minister through, and he resigned. He went home later that day. He's got a wife and three little kids, all under the age of 10 years old. It makes me cry thinking about this. The love of God will melt you. He got home that day, and he was so disenchanted with his life and with his faith and with God and, and how things had gone and what's going on, man? Is this all there is? And he writes off a letter telling his wife and his three kids under the age of 10 that he's abandoning them. And that he's leaving. And he did. He left. He didn't even see them. He writes a letter and he leaves. This Episcopal preacher. And he goes off to be a logger in the state of Vermont. And he buys this flimsy metal trailer. Because that's what you live in when you're off to be a logger. Well, when you're a logger off in Vermont, it's freezing cold. Like it gets like negative 20 degrees. Um, for you guys, I think that's negative 60 because we're Fahrenheit, right? I, I, might, I think I'm right around the right uh, thing. So he has this trailer, and this trailer doesn't have electricity. It's this thin metal thing. And so you got to have a space heater in the trailer. So it's negative 20 one night, and he's got his little space heater in there working. Well, the space heater breaks. And it's negative 20 outside. And he picks up the space heater to throw it up against the wall. And he misses the wall. And it slams through the window. 
And now the glass is broken and the negative 20 that was outside is now in there. This, is a, this, this guy was a preacher for many years. He falls on his knees in his face crying. And do you know what he says? I hate you, Christ. I hate you, God. I'm done with this Christianity thing. It's all over. Weeping on the ground in the darkness of faith. Because sometimes there's darkness around and faith manifests. As he fell on the ground weeping, rejecting God, telling God he hated him, that he was done with Christianity, he hears a voice on the inside of him say, it's okay, Kevin. I know. I'm here with you. It's okay. And then he heard Jesus weeping with him. Weeping with him. There was such an incredible intimacy that he experienced in that moment with God that he got up, he left the logging company, he went back home, reconciled with his family and his wife, and he went on to pastor the most spirit-filled church in an American city named Seattle. in Seattle. Just from that moment of deep brokenness and experiencing that God knows his hurt, that God wasn't far from him, that God wasn't condemning him. You see, because when you've hurt like somebody else has hurt, you don't judge them for what they say and they do when they hurt. Because you understand why they might be confused. You understand why they might say what they say. You understand why they might do what they do. Because you're so intimately acquainted with that hurt, you know you really know. And he felt such a deep closeness with God in the midst of his hurt that the life of God that was also there lifted him up out of the hurt and made everything that had gotten crooked straight. The gospel accounts 12 different times record the phrase Jesus was moved with compassion. Twelve different times it records that. The Greek word used for that phrase, Jesus was moved with compassion, is splagizomai. That doesn't sound right in English, does it? <laughs> and trust me, I'm from the South in America. I don't know if you can tell I have a funny accent. So I'm probably not pronouncing it right. But I'm doing the best I can. Splagnizomai. Now listen, because Greek language is very expressive. It's much more expressive than the English, English language. And because of the, the poverty of our English language, Jesus being moved with compassion doesn't really capture the deep meaning of splagnizomai. It doesn't really capture the depth of what that word is trying to declare. So depending, we all use different Bible translations. Depending on the Bible translation that you might use, it could say Jesus was moved with pity. It could say Jesus felt sorry for them. You know, I feel sorry for my dog when it's hurting. I feel pity for my dog when it's hurting. If I look in your face and I see you're hurting, 
I promise you I don't feel sorry for you. I don't pity you because you're not a lesser kind of a being than me. If I see you hurt in your face, I feel compassion in the deepest part of my being. My gut is wrenched. My heart is tore open. The love that I feel comes pouring out of me. Do you know why? Because I know that hurt that I see in your face. Because I've felt it. I've cried over it. And so it could say he felt sorry for them. It could even say his heart went out to them. And those are all nice things. It's not a bad thing. But that misses the profound physical and emotional depth of what that Greek word is saying. And that Greek word comes from the root, splagma, which means the bowels of a person, the intestines, their entrails, the very inner being of a person, the deepest part of a person from which they say the deepest emotions would come forth, emotions like hatred and love come forth from that place. When the Bible says that Jesus was moved with compassion, what it's trying to say to all of us is that his gut was wrenched. His heart was torn open. The most vulnerable part of his being was laid bare. That Greek word, splagizomai, It's deeply related to the Hebrew word for compassion, which is rakamim. And the Hebrew word for compassion, rakamim, it actually refers to the womb of Yahweh. The womb of Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of God. Now we've added in syllables or vowels so we could say it. But the Hebrew word for compassion that it's talking about Jesus felt when he felt compassion, it's talking about the very womb of Yahweh, God himself. And so the compassion of Jesus is such a deep and central and powerful emotion in Jesus Christ that it can only be described as a movement within the womb of God himself. It can only be described as God himself being gut-wrenched, as God himself feeling laid bare, torn open in the heart to where his innermost being is plopped out in front of us and the, 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 the innermost tenderness and love of God is being poured out. All because of the hurt of somebody else. The womb of God is where the, all the divine gentleness and tenderness is contained. And so when it says Jesus was moved with compassion, it means God was moved in his innermost being and all the divine gentleness and tenderness that lays inside of there came pouring out and was laid bare. I know we all know this, but I just I want to make sure we don't forget because we can easily forget that Jesus is not only a man. Yes, he's a man. Have you guys ever heard the saying, Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man? I think most believers would agree Jesus is God. But I think sometimes we forget some of what that means. Jesus is God himself. What does Isaiah 9 say? Unto us a child was born, unto us a son was given, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, for he will be wonderful counselor, prince of peace, 
mighty God, everlasting Father. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. A council was formed in Nicaea in A.D. 325 because they wanted to gather together and decide for once and for all who and what is Jesus. And do you know they gathered together and they issued an edict and they determined that Jesus is the self-same substance of the Father, that he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Now, I think most of us would say, amen, Jesus is God. But if I'm being honest, in my own life, Jesus was only God up until the point of the cross. Somehow at the cross, Jesus was no longer God for me. Now he became only a man. Well, that really deprives us of the deep emotional tenderness in the heart of the Father for His children when they are hurting. When the Bible talks about Jesus being moved with compassion, it's talking about God being moved with compassion. He came forth from the bosom of the Father into the earth because the Father was moved with compassion because His people, you, were suffering and you were hurting and it bothered Him so much in the deepest part of His being that He couldn't stand to let it continue. He couldn't stand to remain in heaven while you were in earth hurting and suffering. He cared so much that He entered into our perishable bodies. It says He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He entered into the very depth of our hurt, our pain, our hatred, our suffering, our confusion, everything that had tried to destroy our life. He entered into it and stood in the midst of it. There's no greater time where Jesus would move with compassion because of our hurt than on the cross. God was in Christ on the cross, Paul said, reconciling the world to himself. There's no greater time than God was moved with compassion over our hurt than at the cross. There's God on the cross and He's being nailed to a cross by the people He came to save. And He hurt so bad for us that all he could think about when we were filled with hatred and fear and anger and frustration and confusion and we were taking it out on Him, all he could think about was what was hurting us. All he could think about was our lives and what was going on in our hearts. And so he let our death, the death that found the home in us, he let it come out of us onto himself. I've seen that in my personal life because I've nailed my earthly father to a cross over and over when I was a child. Over and over. And he always just took it. He never gave me evil for the evil I gave him he always returned my evil with good. And there's Jesus. There's God. Emmanuel. There He is on the cross taking our evil into Himself. And there He is returning good to us. At the cross, the ground of all being shook. The source of all life. The heart of all love burst open. And the relentless tenderness of God was laid bare and poured out towards all of mankind on the cross to heal our affliction. 
The cross is God being moved with compassion towards you in the deepest part of His being because He knows, He really knows what hurts you. And He came and allowed everything that hurts you to come on to Him so that He could look you in the face and put His hand on your shoulder. And just like Jesus said to that preacher, Kevin Martin, He could put His hand on your shoulder and say, I know, it's okay. Me too. Because that preacher, wasn't he hating God? Do you know mankind? We were confused. We were blind. We'd been stung by death. Our understanding had been darkened by the death in this world. And we were God-haters. Mankind was. But God never confused who we are with what we had done. He never confused who you are with what you had done. Just like my father never confused me with what I had done. He always emptied himself for me. And that's what God was doing at the cross. So that we don't just think he knows, but we see that dude knows. Because we see he has tasted every ounce of our hurt himself. Think about it. The God of all glory, in whom there is no darkness or death, there's only light or life. That's all there is in this guy. This guy loves us so much that he allowed himself to be consumed or to all of our death to come upon himself. He felt all the voices. He felt pressed in by the confusion and the fear. He felt it all. He knows. And that's why he doesn't judge us when he finds us dead in our sin and he finds us doing things out of our fear, out of our hurt, out of our pain. Because he knows he's the only one that can resist death. He's the only one. He knows he's the only one that won't be confused by the death. He's the only one that won't be moved by the death. He knows he has life in himself that consumes death. And he's come to get his life in you so that you don't have to resist sin yourself, but so his life can dwell in you and his life can resist sin inside of you. When you think about resisting sin, you don't think about resisting bad behavior. You think about death being resisted. Because the Bible says the sting of death is sin. And so if you want to resist sin, you got to figure out how to resist death. And I promise you, none of us can resist death in our own strength. God's the only one who could resist death. He resisted death on the cross. That death of the cross, he went down into the place of the dead. And it couldn't hold him, it says. The pangs of death couldn't hold him. He came busting out as the king of glory. In that life that came pouring out of the grave, conquering the grave, that's from the innermost being of his tenderness and his gentleness being burst forth on the cross because he knows, he really knows what hurts his people. <laughs> See, when you start to know that, God, I promise you, it changes everything. That's when you start running to God with an unconcealed heart, no matter what's going on in your life. Because this guy knows. We have a saying in the States, people in the States, and maybe it's just a human saying, but we don't want to hear from somebody about our struggles unless they know. Like, I, you don't want to hear advice from somebody unless they, we say, walk the mile in our shoes. Now, don't try and tell me about what I'm doing and what has happened unless you've lived a mile in my shoes. Well, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 5 that Jesus felt the same weakness we've all felt. 
And it says that's why he's qualified to minister life to us. The cross is the result of God. You know why there could even be a cross? Because God was finely tuned to what hurts us. The cross is the perfect depiction. I don't know if you guys realize this. We, the, the world and the serpent, once the cross happened, he couldn't do anything to keep it from being a historical fact. But he'd come and tried to taint it and what it meant with his words and his wisdom. And so we haven't really seen the depth of what's being de declared at the cross. You know the cross is the perfect depiction of all the suffering we've all felt in this world? I mean, whose life did Jesus have when he was crucified? Ours. And so the reason why he ended up nailed to a cross is because the world had already nailed all of us to a cross. The cross, the injustice of what happened to Jesus, to God Almighty, it's painting a picture of the injustice that's happened to all of us. We've all felt that. And we're supposed to see the testimony of what the world's tried to do to our lives in the face of Jesus. And we're supposed to see the testimony of what the world has tried to do to our brothers and sisters in the face of Jesus. Because what happens is, is we start looking at one another and we realize we all know. And now we can identify with one another. And we're qualified to minister to one another. Because we really know what hurts us, just like God really knows. In God's passion, you know, we talk about the passion of Christ, right? There's the movie, The Passion. Well, it's true. He did have a passion for us, a compassion, and that led to the cross. But that's God's passion. The cross is God's passion. And what we've done is we've made it Jesus' passion, but not the Father's. But Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen him, you've seen me. The whole point is you're supposed to see the Father when you look at Jesus. You're supposed to see God. Jesus even came and said, I didn't come to speak of myself. I came to speak of the Father. And then when we talk about the cross, we talk about Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with talking about Jesus at the cross. But we talk about it as if that's just a man there. That's not the Father. But the whole point is, is Jesus come to reveal something about the Father. And he's trying to reveal it to us at the cross. And he's trying to show us that the Father knows what hurts us. And it bothers him so much that his heart was laid bare. His inner being was torn open. And out of that came the relentless tenderness and gentleness and the love of God. And within that love, because he knows what hurts us, he knows it's death that hurts us, within the innermost being of his body being broken open, do you know what's inside of the body of God? Do you know what happens when his body's broken open? A life that conquers what destroys us is released. And the only way it could be released on us is if he could put on a body and then let that body be torn, just like we were torn. And now out of the deepest bowels of his compassion comes pouring forth a life that destroys everything that tried to destroy us. I'm reminded of like the nursery song I would sing when I was a little boy. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. I'm little, I used to love that.
The Bible talks about the New Testament, and we're about done. Thank you so much for your patience with me. I know I rambled on at the beginning for a long time. The Bible has the New Testament. Do you know what a testament is? It's like the last will and testament of a person. When someone passes from this world, they have a will or a testament. And it's their final word. And it doesn't necessarily mean that a, a person couldn't speak again. That could be part of it. But what it says is, is this the final thing he has to say about anything? This is the final thing you will know him by. There is nothing else to know him by other than this will in this testament. So we talk all the time about the New Testament and the New Covenant, don't we? And we say it's been founded by the blood of Jesus. Well, that blood of Jesus is also the blood of God. And I quoted this last night, but Acts chapter 20, verse 28, write it down, go read it. It says that God himself shed his own blood. And do you know when God shed his blood, do you know what it was? His final testament or word to his people. And do you know what that word is? I've loved you with an everlasting love. I hurt so bad at what hurts you. Jesus wept when Lazarus died. It bothers me so much what hurts you that I'd rather come into the earth myself and let it hurt me so that in my body being broken open, what can happen in my body being broken, isn't that what we talk about with the new covenant? What can happen in my body being broken, in my blood being shed, is that the spirit of life I have in myself can be poured out on all flesh and heal you from all your diseases and heal you from that which afflicts you. I know for me, when God first started showing me this, I cried with God for a while because I'd been hurt for a while. And I had some of those moments like that priest because I don't know if you guys realize it, but I'm a, I'm a human with like passions. I'm an intense guy. And so I struggle to hide what's in my heart. What's in my heart is coming out, even should nobody want to hear it. It's coming out. I could even feel uncomfortable and feel inside myself, shut up, what are you doing? And it's still coming out. I can even go back later and watch the video and think, my goodness, what are you doing, man? Look how much you're yelling. Look at your arms. I've been doing the same thing for 12 years. I can't stop. <laughs> Lord, help me. So I was like that preacher because I couldn't contain what I felt for God. And I was confused and hurt. And I let God have it. Right? And so, man... Don't be afraid, whatever comes forth as you begin to know the depth of God's love, like we're talking about, don't be afraid of what might come forth out of you. You might have to cry. Can I share a sentence about you, Gwen? My dear sister Gwen and brother Brad that fly all the way from the United States to be here with me and all of you guys, glory to God. Her, her first husband passed away from cancer. And I won't get into the, all the details, but that can confuse you. That can, that can cause you to be like, what's up? And, and sometimes without you even knowing it, you start building up walls with God. Because if you're confused, you're struggling to trust God with your life, right? And you build up walls and you don't even know it. And what it does is it traps in the hurt. 
And sometimes when you hear something about this kind of a God we're talking about and the walls start coming tearing down, man, some deep hurt can come out. And I remember when God started tearing down the walls of our dear sister Gwen, the first thing that came out of her mouth towards God was very vocally, I can't trust you. And that's the foundation from where it could be healed. So don't be afraid to let what's in there come out with God. Right? It, he's good. We nailed him to a tree and he still embraced us. He can take it. And the foundation from where he can pluck it out and heal is for it to come out of you. Because our sister Gwen here received a deep healing. Right? So maybe you've been abused by the people who were supposed to love you the most. God knows. His hand, I see his hand stretched forth towards you right now, resting on your shoulder, trying to tell you, me too. I came into the earth and the people who were supposed to love me the most abused me. I mean, God was flogged. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross. He went without food. Maybe you're fearful walking around in this world. There's a lot of fear in the world. Maybe you're carrying a lot of burdens. God knows. He felt that full weight of the fear come against him. He sweat blood when he encountered what we encounter every day. He knows. He gets it. Maybe you've been rejected. He knows what that feels like too. He was rejected. There's even verses where Jesus laments with the Father in Isaiah, talking about how His ministry was in vain. They rejected me. He knows exactly what all that feels like. He knows what it can do to a person. He was spit on. He was abused. He was rejected by those who were supposed to love Him the most. He went without food. A crown of thorns was put on His head. They mocked Him as the King of glory. God Almighty! We've all been mocked. We've all felt rejected. We've all wanted to be accepted. You think God didn't want to be accepted? Why do we even want to be accepted? Because God wants us to accept Him. He's not insecure about it because He knows He's God. But I promise you, He's got a burning in His bones for you to see how much He loves you and then for you to feel love in your heart back towards Him. That's why we feel that way. But we can only find it satisfied in Him. He knows, He really knows what hurts you. You know, the name of God, Yahweh, we added the syllables so we could say it. Because we can't say words without, or not vowels. We added the vowels because we can't say words without vowels. But the name of God is actually Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. Y, H, V, H. You know, something interesting about the Hebrew language, some of you might know this. Each individual Hebrew letter has a picture meaning that goes along with it. And you can even develop the meaning of a word by looking at the pictures of each letter. And do you know what the name Yud, Hav, Vav, He means in the Hebrew pictograph? Open hand of grace nailed in grace. Open hand of grace nailed in grace. He has grace in his hand for you. And even the nail that was nailed into his hand even released that grace into the earth. Notice when Jesus came back from the dead and he appeared to the disciples. 
he showed them his hands. He showed them the nail marks in his hands. And he showed them his side. And do you know what he said unto them? Peace be unto you. Now that that word peace isn't, isn't mostly known as talking about a war. Like we think there's a peace treaty. That word peace is shalom in the Hebrew. And what it means is wholeness. Completeness. What it means is to serve somebody with wholeness and completeness. It means to make everything that had gotten crooked straight for them. And there's Jesus, the hands of God, open hand of grace, nailed in grace. And there's him showing us his hands. And there he is telling us, wholeness be upon you. Completeness be upon you. I've made everything straight that had gotten crooked. Stephen said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I see his hands being held out to you. I see open hand of grace nailed in grace. There's grace in his hands for you. There's healing in his hands for you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, be ye made whole. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, be ye made complete. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, let every hurt that has tried to come upon your life be lifted up and removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Be ye made whole by the power of our Christ in his life. Man. Thank you, Father, that your faith is present here today. Thank you, Father, that your faith has life in it. And I just thank you, Lord, that your faith that you've given us in Jesus, that dwells in our hearts, just thank you, Father, that it well up inside of people and be a river of living water, and that it make people whole, and that it heal their hearts from which tried to hurt them, that it pluck out of their hearts, that it remove it as far as the east is from the west. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Glory to God. Thank you guys so much. Man, I really appreciate you guys bearing with me. Thanks, brother.